0: a story that right and today, a wall that they climb climbing, you can carry the past on your shoulders you can start over welcome to the broadcast of Calvary no Chapel Jacksonville through, where the pastor Jesus. is Pastor Ricky Rewater you. grab your bibles and read along now here's pastor so Ricky Welcome. My name is Ricky. I'm the pastor here. Let's pray one more time before we dive into the Word. And so, Lord, we come before you this morning, God, thankful, Father, for another opportunity to worship and praise you. I know this morning has been another morning of praise reports, and God, it makes worship such a sweet time. But Lord, I pray that now as we shift from worship into the time in the word, that you would settle our spirits, that we would be ready to receive what your word has for us. That Lord, you would continue to, Father, sanctify us as a church. That you continue to make us more holy by your word and your word alone. And that Father, you would make us, Lord, um, spirits that are willing to receive and apply your word to our lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter 16, um, there is one other announcement. Um, our, one of our worship leaders, Tim Boris, finally back from deployment. And <clears throat> he, uh, he chose violence this morning as he wore a Dodgers t-shirt into the church. But one of the jokes, yeah, <laughs> Yankees fan here, you got to chill out. But anyway. I remember him joking before he left. He goes, You're not going to be close to finishing the book of Matthew by the time I get back. And to no surprise, I am just over halfway. So we are only in Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be covering the first four verses. So if you would, go ahead and flip there. As we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew, if you need a Bible, please raise your hands and we will get one to you. As always, we want to encourage you to have your physical Bible with you so that you can track with us in the Word and ensure that your teachers are teaching from it and not their own wisdom. Now, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then we're going to dive into the Word together. i got a sister in the back left who needs one. So if you're in sixteen one, would you say Amen. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign. Of Jonah, so he left them and departed, and that's where we're going to pause for today. Now, before we get into these four verses, we have been spending obviously a lot of time in the book of Matthew, and we've been seeing the ministry of Jesus for some time. In the previous chapters, we would see that Jesus is posed with questions, and or oversights even, and Jesus would deal very graciously. With those who don't know him, and he would deal very graciously with the disciples who, as we read the scripture, we would think they should have known the answers, but Jesus, as he is gracious, is kind. But today we see Jesus as we work through the next couple weeks in Matthew 16, he begins to respond a little bit more bluntly, both to the Pharisees, or all to the Pharisees, Sadducees, but also to the disciples, as we will see next week. And as we're looking at it, Something that comes to mind is an issue of spiritual maturity that we tend to overlook in our walk and journey in Christianity. And so, before we dive in, if you guys want to, I have it, I believe I have the reference up on the screen, Is James 1, 5 through 8. It reads, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. And so as we look at the word, there is a call of spiritual growth and maturity that is required for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. Is that It's not okay that we would raise our hands at an altar call and sit stagnant in our faith, but we would press into Jesus and let the Holy Spirit sanctify us and grow us. And so here as we see a change in Jesus' tone and his responses to these, we see that Jesus is calling out spiritual immaturity and blindness in this chapter, at least certainly for the first half. He's going to call out the pride that would lead to the spiritually unsubmissive. And then he'll address an issue of spiritual common sense as we get into this in the next couple of weeks. And so again, we have to know that spiritual maturity is expected of us before we get into this chapter. And again, that doesn't mean perfection. Perfection. When we speak about spiritual maturity, we know that we are all growing, but until we are heaven-bound, there is nobody who has achieved perfection, and so there is still grace in this type of growth that we are speaking about. It is a slow and wise consideration of the word of God and its right application. That is what spiritual maturity is. As we continue to follow Jesus, we will learn to be slower. We would learn to be more considerate. We will learn to be more gracious and loving, not just of the word, but towards one another. As we're growing in Christ, he will reveal where we lack in maturity. And thank God that he's revealing the target that would Reveal the reason for the test. I don't know about you guys, but in times of prayer, it's a dangerous thing to ask for patience as the Lord is going to provide you lots of opportunity to be patient. So if the Lord reveals that you are impatient and you pray for patience, buckle up because you have opportunities coming. That is what the sanctification process is. We are called to grow in maturity in this way. And as such, the spiritually mature must be able to see their faults and be willing to correct them. The spiritually mature don't walk in condemnation, but they walk in grace to allow that maturity to take shape. The spiritually mature see heavenly direction and correction clearly and learn to appreciate that their future results would be good even though they don't see them yet. What does that mean? It's trusting the process of sanctification. There's times we grow impatient as we press into Christ. And we want results now, but trust and know that it produces patience and the fruit of the Spirit in time. The spiritually mature are people quick to remove planks from their own eyes before they would attempt to walk blindly in some sort of correction for somebody else. That means those who are spiritually mature, as we see faults and errors in others, we would pause and consider how we might be wrong before we would ever dare suggests somebody else might be. The spiritually mature don't walk in a posture of pride. They tend to move in meekness as they understand the gift of another day and the gift to be used again by God is a truly heavenly gift. The spiritually mature are so heavenly-minded that they might even become overqualified for the foolishness of this world. There's a phrase that years ago I started to despise. I'm sure many of you have heard it. You can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I would say scripture would say that if you're heavenly minded, truly heavenly minded, there is nobody that is more good for the world that the Lord has placed you in. It's not that you're too good for the world, but we learn to have no cares or desires for the foolishness that reside in it. And somehow, in that increased maturity and wisdom, we should never lose our willingness and ability to eagerly desire to learn and grow ourselves. This is a really important one. This is the final mark that I'll note today, but the spiritually mature always go to a place of learning to do just that, to learn. That is inclusive of the house of worship. That is inclusive of the time of study. They hope to be taught again and again by the Father. The spiritually mature are still anxiously hopeful for another heavenly provision, one that they might not have even known yet, but thankful if they do. So can I say, as the Pharisees and Sadducees would be walking in spiritual immaturity, when you stop coming to church or to Bible studies with an intentional desire to see the Lord And see how he would encourage you to apply his word to your life. You are no longer walking in spiritual maturity, but spiritual immaturity. You've hit a prideful stone wall that needs to be removed. If you think that we ought to come to the place of worship without being ready to learn, we might think that we have learned enough. And I would say that we have never learned enough of God. Amen. If you can look at another man and think, I have nothing to learn or can't learn from him in your eyes, if you can't learn from him, you have, your eyes have become earthbound as you have forgotten that it's the Holy Spirit that's communicating through that person. This is an easy mistake to make. This is an easy mistake to make, especially for those who are young in the church and young in their faith, and we suppose that simply because of their age, they have nothing to offer forgetting that it's the holy spirit speaking through them should they be called to do so these are not spiritually mature actions or thoughts they are immaturity god calls us to be people growing in spiritual maturity regardless of our life circumstances and so consider that today as we get into the word is are we growing in maturity That doesn't mean that you're mature today. It doesn't mean that I'm mature today, but are we making purposeful efforts to bend our knees before the Lord to grow in spiritual maturity? As we look at the scripture over the next two weeks, we're going to see the Pharisees and Sadducees post themselves in pride before Jesus rather than come to him willing and wanting to learn. And so in verse one, I'll read it again. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Here the Pharisees are asking for more evidence. Now, I know we're speaking about spiritual maturity. And I just said it's good that we come to the Lord to learn. And now we see the Pharisees sitting opposed to Jesus as it seems as though they're asking for wisdom. But we'll see their intentions are not as they would try to portray them. These Pharisees and Sadducees would have been well aware of the known capabilities and miracles of Jesus up to this date. Now, I say it that way because there are certain miracles through the book of Matthew that Jesus only allowed the disciples, those closest to him, to see, but his miracles were abundant still in the public eye. With this knowledge, it becomes perfectly reasonable then to press them harder about what their intentions may be as the reader. Jesus is going to press them, but we should also consider why would they ask for more evidence considering it's so substantial. Now, for those of you who have not been tracking with us through the book of Matthew, I'm going to go through what Jesus has done so far. If you have been tracking with me, please bear with me as we go through the word here, and we're trying to emphasize the point and the problem. So here are the miracles that Jesus has performed in the public eye just in the Gospel of Matthew up to Matthew chapter 16. In chapter 3, we see the presence of the Trinity clearly seen in the baptism of Christ. In chapter 4, Jesus heals every affliction that was brought to him while he was in Galilee's synagogues. In chapter 5, we see him communicate, In beyond chapter 5 as well, the most complete and perfect sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 8, we see Jesus would cleanse a leper. We see that in that chapter, he'd also heal the centurion's servant, that he would heal everyone that they brought to him, that in that chapter still, he would heal two demon-possessed men. Again, these are just the miracles that the public was well aware of. In chapter 9, we see that he heals a paralytic. He made him able to walk again. Jesus heals the woman with the infirmity of blood as she only touches the bottom of his clothing. Jesus raises a girl from the dead in chapter 9, and he would continue on to heal two blind men. And interesting there, he would directly tell them, don't tell anybody what I have done from you. But in their excitement of healing, they did just the opposite, and they let everybody know what Jesus had done for them. In chapter 12, Jesus would heal a man with a withered hand and make it whole. In chapter 12, he would perform an extraordinary miracle and that he would heal a mute, demon-possessed man. We're not going to go into why that is extraordinary, but it is. And here in chapter 12, we'll see that this is the first time, as we just read, that Jesus would mention the sign of Jonah to the Pharisees as they have asked for a sign after they have just witnessed this overly abundant, clear miracle that only Jesus could have performed. If you haven't read that chapter, it is funny, as Jesus makes them well aware of their faults in that chapter as well. In chapter 14, he would feed the 5,000 from just a few loaves. He would go on to heal all the sick that were brought to him in Gennesaret. In chapter 15, he would heal the Canaanite woman's demon-possessed daughter, He would go on to heal many, again, all that were brought to him as well. And then he would feed the 4,000 from just a few loaves and fish again. This is 18 miracles in whole, just in the book of Matthew, up to chapter 16. And so when you take that into consideration, this question all of a sudden seems a little bit more ridiculous than it did at the beginning, is that they were fully aware and trust... (laughs) history when it would say that whatever Pharisees and Sadducees were present, they certainly would go back to their places of work or whether it would be a synagogue or elsewhere, and they would certainly let each other know what Jesus was doing. How do we know this? Because they knew to come to Jesus to test him because the people were starting to consider that he would be the Messiah, And as the people would start to consider that he is the Messiah, that he is the awaited Savior, they would rebuttal and try to diminish the ministry of Jesus. And so here again, actually if you read in the King James Version, it says that they would um, try to come about this in a cunning way. They would ask him to perform a sign from heaven. So again, this question that seemed to desire a kind of learning doesn't really indicate it in the context of what they know they're trying to use Jesus as some sort of some kind of magic man or trying to stumble him or show that the show the world that he is not god but Jesus has done dealing with them in their conversation so verses 2 through 3 he answered them when it is evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be a stormy <clears throat> it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So this is Jesus' response as we see a call to interpret the signs to the Pharisees, and we can't ever remove the fact that there are others listening on. Now as we look at this, Jesus gives them a metric that we still use today. For those of you that are unfamiliar, in the evening time, If the sky is red, it typically means that the next day will be dry and pleasant. Again, this isn't every single time, but we're speaking generalities here. And in the morning, it's the opposite. If you wake up and you see a red sky in the morning, you should prepare for poor weather as it is most likely coming in your way. And so here, we get a seemingly agitated response from Jesus, seeing that Jesus has validated his heavenly and miraculous work on behalf of the Father. He's getting tired of the questions to prove himself as he has done so abundantly. Now, as we move forward in this, this is important for us to know as well. We have to remember, Jesus knows the intentions of a man's heart as he is God. These men are putting on a show for themselves, their peers, and their followers. But God sees beyond that And this is something that we've known about God since the beginning. If you have a pen and paper, write down 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 8. The people of Israel would desire a king. And they wanted to look at the appearance of a a man. They wanted to find somebody who they depicted or thought would be the proper representation of a king. But what do we see there? It says, do not look on his appearance Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, speaking of Saul. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, not looking on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here, the Lord makes it very clear that he is mostly concerned or only concerned with the intentions that exist within a man, not the way that he looks. Jesus calls them out for something that we do frequently, which is putting on a show. This harsh rebuttal reveals something must be different about the root of their questions. Swaths of people have come and done the same thing. He's just been healing people in abundance. But here, he shows us that their intentions are wrong. They are missing the obvious signs before them. Remember, they aren't just asking for a sign. These men have approached Jesus again to ask for a sign to prove at the very least his heavenly affiliation, but really the possibility that he might be the Messiah, and they may be doing both. And as we consider this, this is their job. Any spiritual leader's job is to verify whether something is or isn't of God. They should be taking the time to consider the validity of the claim of Savior They should gather the evidence necessary to put their stamp of approval on the Messiah as they have been waiting for him to arrive, but that hasn't happened as they've ignored prophecy after prophecy to this date. At every turn, these spiritually disobedient leaders would double down on the idea that Jesus is a problem. They would seek to kill him. And with that, we might understand the frustration of Jesus as he calls them out for this error in judgment. In some, he's responding saying, you're asking for evidence that already sits before you. You know that the sky is red and the kind of weather that should follow it. So why ignore the spiritual reality of a red sky? You know how to determine whether something is authentic or not. You know how to determine the weather. You have the tools to determine whether I am the Messiah or not, yet you're completely ignoring the evidence that sits before you right now. Why ignore the spiritual, sorry, scriptural prophecies concerning my comings and doings that would allow you to know who I am, but yet you persist to ask these questions? The sky is red And you're ignoring the reality that's in front of you. Now, can I say that for the believer, the red sky in this context, again, we're we're talking thematically for a moment. Jesus being that is a sign of peace. But for those that don't know him, there is a storm coming. And there's a storm coming for these Pharisees should they not repent themselves. And we can miss the obvious today. Again, as we look at the scripture, it's easy to read about the Pharisees and Sadducees and think, these guys are so dumb. They're so hard-headed. They're so prideful. How can somebody be like this? But we're just like this all the time. In ministries, there, is some, there are few things more frustrating than the phrase sometimes, then I'm gonna pray about that. There are instances when men and women have no intention to relent to the will of God. But we use this phrase and we hijack this phrase because we know that it's a churchy, safe way out of whatever circumstance that we're in. Unfortunately, this phrase, even within God's church, leads to more inaction than it does anything else. And again, that's not a discouragement to pray. Please pray. But as you seek the Lord, I would encourage you to also be honest. And to be honest with those that you're communicating with. If you're really going to pray about what the Lord would have you do, don't lie about it when you know what you should be doing. I I think oftentimes when we're talking about the church family as a whole and we talk about children's ministry, The group as a whole would say, when the children's ministry needs volunteers, would say, well, I'm going to pray about it. Well, I would say biblically, if we're really going to consider it, every man and woman is called to lead the next generation. So every man and woman within the body of Christ is obligated to lead that next generation. So if you're looking for biblical direction, the direction is there to serve. Now, mind you, that's a general conversation. Not everybody's called to do that, but still, consider that for a moment. There's a lot of times again, we just use the instance of prayer as a scapegoat to get out of our responsibilities. Now, if you have been asked about children's ministry, you've prayed about it and you know it's not for you, please don't serve there, because the kids would it'd be better if they had somebody who was joyful about it. So that was not a call to go in there. I've seen some of you work with kids. It's good you stopped. But) <laughs> But still, here, we have to be honest about what it is that we're communicating to the Lord should we be able to grow with one another. The children's ministry is a silly and light example, but when it comes to our relationships with one another, we say we pray about it knowing how what it is that we're supposed to do to act gracefully and in, in mercy towards one another in our friendships, but also to our spouses. When you're in a tiff with your spouse and you go to counsel with somebody else and they remind you that you're called to be gracious and loving and forgiving in abundance to one another. And you say, I'm going to pray about it. No, you already know what the answer is. You just don't want to do it. Can I say, I, I understand as you go seek biblical counsel, when you're talking about issues of marriage, most of us know when we sit down with the pastor, with the pastors, whoever it is, we know biblically what we're going to hear. We're kind of buckling up for like, he's gonna tell me to be kind, he's gonna tell me to love her, he's gonna tell me to do all these things, but maybe this would be the one guy who'd tell me not to. No, that's what scripture says to do. You're there, you, a lot of us have sat down in counseling because we're buying time to do the thing that we know we should do. Let's be honest in our prayers, let's be honest in how we move forward, let's be honest as we present ourselves before the Lord and then do as he would direct us to do. It doesn't make sense to call ourselves a Christ follower and not walk where Jesus is walking and Jesus does not walk in unforgiveness. These Pharisees are waving a kind of false flag here and Jesus is calling them out for their intentions. He knows their motivations. He knows their wickedness. He knows their heart is far from him and if he knows that of them, he knows that of us. We see the harsh rebuttal to the Pharisees, and we like to ignore that the Lord might be calling us out for our sin, but he might be. I don't know how many of you guys have ever prayed and you feel like you've you've met silence or you've met the opposite answer you wanted to hear. Can I just encourage you that whatever it is you hear from the Lord that aligns with Scripture is what's best for you. It may not be what you want, but it is what's best. And if you trust him and you trust the Holy Spirit and you trust his word, he will make all things well. Well does not mean the way that you want it, but it does mean well. He's telling them, you don't want to know if I'm the Messiah. You don't want to know if I'm affiliated with heaven. What you want to know is that you are right. The signs are clear and they are abundant. You've seen who I am, and you've heard the words from my mouth. And he would go on to say to them in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now the sign of Jonah. We went into depth on this a few weeks ago, and so I'd encourage you, if you... If you haven't heard that, you may go back and go do so. But what this is in sum is Jesus is giving them a bit of prophecy using history. Jonah would would disappear for three days and after three days be brought back and then would deliver a message of hope to the people of Nineveh. Jesus would do the same for the world as he would be dead for three days, raised again, and deliver a message of hope and that he has been successful in dying for our sins. Is that this will be the sign that is coming. That is all that is necessary. Now here, in the context of this section, theirs in our spiritual maturity may be called into question because of this historical fact. And what do I mean? We're talking about the resurrection now. This is what the sign of Jonah is. 25% 25% of people who profess to be Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 25%. That means that there are some in this room who would say that they are believers but do not actually believe that Jesus died, rose from the get, from the grave, and conquered sin and death. And can I say biblically to you, if that is you, If you're calling yourself a Christian and you don't believe that, you are no Christian. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We are saved by his victorious resurrection, and we are saved by his grace within it. Jesus did not raise from the dead. We have been saved from nothing. That is what scripture clearly states. You cannot claim to believe in the word of God and reject the most important moment of the entire thing. And can I say, if you don't believe the most miraculous and important part of the entire book, you have no reason to be submitted to the rest of it. Take a look at the churches in our country and the other countries, in, in, in the other uh, denominations or wherever else. All of this spawns from our unwillingness to believe Jesus for who he is because if I can diminish the work and sovereignty of Christ and what he's done, then I can diminish every other command that the word of God has for me in my life. Brothers and sisters, the church is to be an example of holiness as Christ was an example Of holiness. And I would say, as we look around, the church is far from an example of holiness. We, as individuals, are contributors to the lack of holiness within the churches. And that's why we have to ask ourselves about this spiritual maturity. What is the church? It is the bride of Christ. It is the cooperation of the body of believers to come together and be submitted to the word of God. And so if we as individuals start deciding to not be submitted to the word as individuals, then the entire group will not be able to be submitted either. The word is clear. We have to believe in Jesus, what he's done and what he says. Like the Pharisees, the world doesn't want to believe just because they're choosing not to. You might hear some say, well, I don't believe it because there isn't substantial evidence for the fact that he's been risen. I would say historical evidence would say otherwise. As we look at scripture, we see that Jesus was raised from the dead and hundreds of individuals saw him raised from the dead, but not just in our word. You can look at other historical documents outside of Scripture and find that it has been documented throughout history that Jesus did in fact die, he was placed in the tomb, and he was raised from the dead. This isn't just this book. The world, the world God created, cries out that he is God. Now here, these are just the facts of the situation, but consider the spiritual reality, do our actions, do our thoughts, do our lives reflect that we actually believe in a Jesus that is alive and desiring of our soul? And this is not a simple question. This is a deep consideration. Do your thoughts and your actions actually reflect that your life is indebted to a man who saved your soul? If we're called to glorify God with every part of our being, we have to ask, does it reflect that we're honoring him with every part of ourselves? We don't get to just say it with our mouths. We have to profess it with our minds. We have to follow that up with action. We have to follow that up with mercy. We have to live a life like Christ lived And again, spiritual maturity isn't spiritual perfection, but it is walking that way as we serve and love a God who did everything for us. Do our lives reflect the actions of a person indebted to honor another of their whole being? And guys, that isn't to discourage us. That should encourage us. Because when I know that I am indebted to a God who was able to save me from my sins and provide me eternal life, I then, as I am walking in sanctification intentionally, would do so in confidence, regardless of what the world says about how I'm living, because the God who sustains my life and provides it eternally is the one who truly cares for me. I don't have to be concerned with what the world thinks about what I am. The world's going to think you're foolish. The world's going to think that you are stringent. The world's going to think that you are fill in the blank. But God has called you son and daughter, and he has called you redeemed. Be confident in it and walk as it is so. So with that, do we believe ourselves in the sign of Jonah? Do we believe that Jesus is alive, willing, and able to save us? Do we believe he's able to sustain us when everything else fails and is taken away? Brothers and sisters, as we move closer to the end times, the church will not fail. There's no room in Scripture to say that the church would fail. However, it will continue to grow in difficulty. And we're going to be stripped of many things. We're going to be stripped of the comforts of life. We're going to be stripped of the abundance of friends. We're going to be stripped of our creature comforts as we choose to follow the Lord rather than the comfort of this world. And when that time comes, we can't answer that question now. But if we're not asking the question now, would we ever be prepared for the day when we have to live like Jesus is our everything? Because if we can't live like Christ is our all now, everything else we depend on when it's taken away, so will your joy be taken away. Our joy has to be wholly founded on the God who saved us. And again, really ask yourself this question. Sometimes we get really far in life. We don't even realize that we've built our joy on something other than Christ. I think as I'm asking this question, I have to ask myself this question, all of our leaders have to ask themselves these questions, and so do you, if we were really honest about it. Some of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, if we consider it for a moment, I didn't even realize that my joy is actually set on something other than the peace of God. My time is committed to something else. My eyes are committed to something else. My thoughts are committed to something else. And that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. So that's not what I mean. We're called to live excellence, live in excellence in all that we do where Christ has placed us. It doesn't mean don't be good at other things. But it shouldn't be consuming. Christ is our all-consuming thought and he is our provision. If something else is receiving the bulk of our lives and attention other than Christ we are walking in the same dangerous territory as the sadducées and the pharisees here if we're not willing to relent that part of ourselves to the lord when we come to the house of worship worship will cease and this might be strange but that's that's communicated in our willingness to worship even brothers and sisters when it comes to the time of worship when we're unwilling and this is this is really what it is we've spoken about this at our nights of worship When I'm unwilling to open my voice and sing out to the God who the heavens cry out to, who are you? Why are you not willing to worship him? Other people, other things, they get your cheers, they get your chants, they get your songs. I don't need to bring up Taylor Swift, she's on the forefront of all of our minds. Jim shaking his head adamantly in the back, that's not the case. Problem is, you know exactly what I'm talking about, so gotcha. But we relent our worship here, but other things get it all the time. We assume that the Lord isn't worthy of our praise when we keep it from him. We allow other people to demand our accolades, but we're unwilling to give it to the God who's deserving of them. These are issues of pride. These are issues of sin that have grown up within us. And can, again, I say that if that is you today, as it is me, the Lord has beat me to death this week over this particular text. If that is you, you should know that it can be remedied. Just cry out to Jesus. Let him make well what we have broken. As he always has, and he will be faithful to do so. James told us just at the beginning ask for wisdom, and he will give it abundantly. Strive for the peace of God, and that's what you will reside in. Amen. So, with that, let's invite the worship team back up for this final song. I want to ask Pastor Matt and Greg Proctor to come up for prayer. And as always, we want to encourage you if there's any of you who needs prayer for anything, whether it be for The decision to follow Christ, whether it be for healing, whether it just be for direction and wisdom from the Lord, we're up here to pray over you. And again, you might come up and be seeking an answer. We may not have the answer for you, but we can pray to the God of heaven who does. Amen? And if you are not coming up for prayer, again, I want to encourage you as well as you sing to pray for those who come forward as we are called to be a church that prays. So with that, Lord, we come before you this morning again. Father, Having heard your word and having seen, Lord, your correction, Father, to not ignore the signs that you have provided us, that, Lord, we can move confidently knowing Jesus said you are able to save, that, Lord, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get to see the, the intimate and personal miracles, but, Lord, your word has recorded it, and we are even more encouraged than those who would hear your voice this day. God, we pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness. We pray that you would remind us of your power. And God, we pray that you would teach us to walk full of faith, knowing that even when we face the ridicule and the harshness of this world, that God, we have you, our loving Father, who supports and sustains. continue to fill this place with your holy spirit continue to encourage us to praise and continue to remind us lord that you are present May I ask us in your name